Hello and welcome to Living in Exile, a podcast for folks who are in the world but not of the world, and in the church but not of the church. My name is AJ Farley, and along with Amanda Hope Haley, I host this podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about Ezra chapter 3 and nostalgia. We also talked a little bit last time about um, how there were some folks who could not uh, positively identify themselves in the family lines as far as their ability to serve as priests in the temple. And so those folks were excluded from temple service and that would that would have been a devastating thing for those families, but those families were able to go on. Uh, they were not excluded from community. They were not excluded from Jewish life. They were only excluded from temple worship, etc., etc., etc. All right. Now that I've bored you half to death with that review, <laughs> today we're going to look uh, then at Ezra chapter three and the first part of chapter four, and. We've titled this episode, Struggling to Restore Worship of God. And Amanda, why don't you pick up where I'm leaving off here? Remind us where we are and where we're headed. Okay. Well, at this point, the Jews, um, the, the group of Jews coming back from Persia have landed in, in Jerusalem. And they are wanting to do some concrete things. And... Um, <laughs> nice thank pun. you very for nice like, like no pun intended <laughs> some concrete things oh good one is there rebar involved as well that was awesome i would like to say that i am doing this on mountain time so i'm an hour behind aj as far as coffee consumption and water consumption and all that stuff is concerned so sometimes the synapses don't fire and my understanding you're saying that that pun was made because you're dehydrated is that what you're trying to say exactly here something like that <laughs> okay moving right along uh, okay, so the Jews are there, they're in Jerusalem, um, and the first thing that they, well, I'm going to back up a little bit. Um, really, the whole point of Ezra, uh, the book as a whole, is talking about the um, reconstitution of God's people in Jerusalem. And the centerpiece of that is the temple and worship, worship at the temple, who's involved, what all goes into it. So in chapter three, you have the first concrete beginning of that in that um, the altar is is built for the one true God. So that's where that's where we open is with this group of Jews com- coming back and having their first little uh, we'll say meeting, maybe not quite a conflict yet, but their first little meeting with um, those who were left behind in the land, um, as they were called. If you look at um, Ezra three verse three and we're reading from the voice um, that that is what these people are referred to as those who were left behind in the land. Help, help me understand that in verse three there that you referenced. It says the men built the altar on the ruined foundation of Solomon's altar because they feared those who were left behind in the land during the exile. Why would those who were returning fear those who stayed behind in Jerusalem? They feared conflict with them. I would say starting there, they they. This group of people coming in had, they were following the Bible. They believed that they had been called by God to come and do this. 
And in, in our last session, we drew parallels with, um, with the Exodus. And here, I think you can do that again. If you want to maybe, oh, I say this loosely, very loosely, hmm. compare the people who were left behind uh, with the Canaanites. Okay. Um, the Canaanites were in the land. They were established. They were. Hmm were doing their thing. And then this group of people comes in saying, well, we have been called by God to come change your lifestyle and we know better than you do. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's going to be a little bit of tension there. But I do think it's interesting that, it, that the, the voice translation, you as the voice translator in this passage, use the word fear there. It's interesting to me. Yeah. Because it's, um, you know, I think about, because I can understand why that would be the case. What you've told us in the past, and I have no reason to doubt you, but what you've told us in the past is that when folks went away to exile, they would take the influential people away into exile. So those were the folks that would go to serve Assyria or Babylon or Persia, as the case may be, in a larger way. They took the people who had potential away in order to indoctrinate them into the ways of the occupying force. And the people who were left behind in the in the city in Jerusalem were the women and the children and those who were not seen as having potential to benefit the occupiers. So these would have been sort of the, the, the weak, if you will. Is that, am I, am I overstating that? You're, you're not, but I, I would say it was the second generation okay. of the week. It's, it's, you know, very few of the people who were, um, no, actually Wait, were any of them left? Yeah, there may have been a few. Yeah, there were a few left. Um, okay. okay. Very few people were left from when Nebuchadnezzar came in and all of that. And so the people who are ruling in Jerusalem right now, if you will, I mean, not, there wasn't really a government, but society, the people who were in charge of society, mm -hmm. um, you know, had, had basically seized their own power and climbed their own ranks and set up their own societal structure. So um, and so yeah. Well, so I mean, these people, the Jews coming in then, who have this pedigree that they have established in chapter two, uh -huh. um, could almost be looked at as a, you know, invade, maybe even like crusaders, <laughs> religiously invading army. They're coming uh -huh. in and saying, you know, we have the pedigree, we have get the charge from God, uh -huh. uh, we are going to do this thing. They could have come in with that attitude, but they didn't. They came in and they feared. And I would say so often in the Old Testament, and maybe almost every time that the word fear is used, it's not fear like your knees are knocking. It's fear the way we fear God. It's a, it's a sense of reverence. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, they were just tiptoeing around the people who were there. Yeah. And so you see they start off by you know, building the altar on the foundation of Solomon's altar. So, you know, where these people presumably, if they had been carrying out um, any of their, you know, any of their cultic practices in this intervening time, they would have been doing it there on those ruined foundations. So they're, they're mm -hmm. honoring that. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also, they're not coming in and just rebuilding the temple and doing it all at once. They're taking it one step at a time. Right. Uh, and I just think that was very smart. So they're, so they're being very judicious in how they come back, even though they have the mandate from Cyrus, even though they have the authority to come in and just, and just run roughshod over the people who were remaining in Jerusalem 
if they wanted to do this, they could have made a power play and said, no, no, this is how it's going to be. We are going to do it this way, get in line or get out of the way, etc. But they didn't do that. They they attempted to do things in a way that honored the practices that those who had remained behind in Jerusalem um, could get behind. They, Absolutely. They, okay, okay. That's interesting. I, I guess I didn't really think in terms of this notion of them fearing those who were left behind, it was almost like they had a healthy respect for those folks. And so they wanted to, they wanted to do this in a way that would bring unity rather than bringing division in division. division. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that was an aspect of it. I mean, sure. Some of them probably did fear. I mean, I, I I guess it's possible that the people living in Jerusalem could have attacked them and cut them down and said, we don't want you back. I mean, of course, they were stepping into an unknown situation. I think all of that was working together and all of that is behind that word, behind that word fear. That's fascinating to me because I, I have this picture in my mind of like of like um, a hornet's nest like this could because everybody in this conflict is Jewish in the truest sense of the term. And so everybody has a sense like God is on their side in this process. And everybody has a sense like they understand what God wants better than the others who might be involved in this process. And that just seems like a ter- like a recipe for disaster to me mm-hmm. for these folks coming back, um, trying somehow. And they can say that they all want what God wants for this thing, but I'm sure that they would have very different visions of what it, of how it should proceed and how they should, how they should fit, how they should fit back together as a people again, as a culture. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think of a comparison. Are there any, I know in America, there must be some, some great ruins, something we, you know, we go and we visit and we make pilgrimages to, mm-hmm. Uh, well, okay. I mean, let's say, I mean, maybe even the site of of nine eleven, that almost became a holy place mm-hmm. in in the wake of the events there. Mm-hmm. And then, as soon as I mean, we started talking. I mean, of course, of course, we wanted to rebuild. Well, but you know, the Jerusalemites probably would have wanted to rebuild immediately too. But in those intervening ten years, um, where rebuilding didn't happen, mm. that site almost became holy to America. Mm-hmm. And once the rebuilding began, all of the arguments exploded, and all of the red tape arrived. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so maybe you can kind of think of it that way. Uh, this generation of people, the ruins that aren't there aren't just sitting there, you know, waiting to be rebuilt, but they have become holy in themselves. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So some folks might have even taken offense by the notion of putting the new altar on the grounds where the old one was. So even in the mm-hmm. process of attempting to honor those folks who were left in Jerusalem, the the folks who were coming back might have ended up offending them, not even not – even, Obviously, they didn't mean to. I would think they didn't mean to, but they—they, they, regardless of what they did, they were going to run the risk of offending somebody in this process, Absolutely. and they were all going to have to try to work it out somehow together. Mm-hmm. And I was struck by that from a previous conversation. The folks who would have been left behind in Jerusalem, they would have no longer had a temple because uh, the, te- the temple was destroyed. They, they would have no longer had uh, a visible sense of God's presence with them the way that Israel had in in previous days 
the the people who would have been the most strongly influential would have been taken away, and so it would have been the women and children. It would have been the women left behind and the children that they raised, and those children then would have come into positions of authority, not maybe having that real strong uh, strong sense of presence and strong sense of of Jewishness that the people who left would have had, and so they were doing the best that they could with what they had, and they had uh, a uh, a ruined temple uh, that became a holy site for them, basically what you're saying. A different – obviously it was a holy site before. Right. But it, it took on a whole separate level of meaning. Yeah, like there was a melancholy that was attached to it now because yes. not only was this the place where God's glory, this was the place where God – where God was defeated, almost. This was the place. This was the place where God's glory last made it stand, but but it was defeated humanly. And what do we do now? Well, and even make it more human. I mean, our loved ones bled and died, and were cut down, and were shipped away in, in and... defense of this place. Oh my. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I could. That's interesting. The parallel to September 11th for for us as Americans, that would be a significant. And boy, there were lots and lots of debates about how we should how we should proceed in terms of honoring that site. Some folks wanted to build another tower right away, get started as soon as possible. You know, we're going to show the world uh, you can't keep us down. And then other folks were like, "Look, the people died at this site. This needs to be a there needs to be at least some measure of a memorial, not just a little plaque on the side of a building, but a significant fitting tribute mm-hmm. to those who died that day." Absolutely. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. It's loose. I mean, met- metaphors can only go so far. Sure, so sure. Don't don't take it too far. Well, let me back up just a little bit. Um, in verse uh, in three five, the daily burnt offerings to the Eternal began on the first day of the seventh of the seventh month when the Feast of Booths ended. Um, the seventh month is really huge in Jewish culture. There are a lot of festivals then. That's the significance there. But the fact that it became began on the first day shows that. Even though these people were treading lightly, if you will, uh, they were still – they wasted no time um, in getting back to to their the proper um, worship of God and all that even before the temple had been built, before they could you know, put all of the laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy um, into practice. They, they started making those – sacrifices to God. So um, they, they were still, they still had a, a very single-minded purpose. So the sacrifices were the first thing to be reestablished as far as temple cultural right. worship. Yes, we got to get the, the altar. altar rebuilt and we got to start the sacrifices and that needs to happen before anything else happens. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Right. Absolutely. And that um, we've been talking a lot about how Ezra parallels other parts of the Bible. And I think we're coming into another one here. The next section talks about how the men went about procuring the materials to build the temple. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it um, it really alludes to Chronicles' description of the way everything was gathered for the Solomonic Temple. Um, Kings doesn't doesn't focus on it quite as much as Chronicles does, and Chronicles does because it was written later, and um, Chronicles as a book has a really big focus on the, the religion of Israel. 
Okay. So you find more details in Chronicles than you do um, in in Samuel Kings. But um, you, you see that happening here. The people who were, I mean, the Sidonians and uh, the Tyrians, um, the way the Lebanese cedar came by the Sea of Joppa, little details like that okay. follow what is in Chronicles. And so, again, these people are following the pattern of what their ancestors did in the proper reconstruction of the temple. They were very careful. And um, they took, uh, it took about seven years for them to get the temple built. That's um, basically what's happening in, say, verses six through nine. Okay. Um, the temple is getting built. They're putting everything back into production. So um, they didn't rush it, and they tried to follow the Bible, what we now call the Bible, that they tried to follow um, the scriptures as closely as they possibly could. Uh, so in essence, they were retracing the steps that Solomon's men would have taken to build the temple in terms of where they got the materials from, in terms of the way that the materials were shipped, in terms mm-hmm. of how they how they assembled those things. They tried their best to sort of mirror what Solomon had done the first time with the building of the temple. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. Huh. And if you go back then to chapter 2, um, you know, it's it's implied with all those genealogies that they did the same thing for um, setting up the structure of the temple workers as well. Hmm. Okay. So, so all of those folks would have been the people returning would have been put into the same roles that their great-great-grandparents would have served in the yes. temple before. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so these folks, they, they, uh, the, the process begins to rebuild the temple. It takes seven years for the temple to be rebuilt. And then, well, and then there's, there's the dedication and um, this, it, there's the dedication of the temple, which we see right at the end of chapter three. And the next little interesting uh, verse to me creeps up right here. And it's chapter three, verse 12. It says, in the midst of those praises, the priests, Levites, and tribal leaders who remembered the first temple wept loudly when they saw it because they knew this temple could never be as grand as Solomon's. Mm. Um I don't know. This this struck me when I reread it, uh, preparing for our podcast today. Mm. I think we see in Christian tradition a lot of people hearkening back to the good old days and saying, well, we did things right then. Everything was better then. Our buildings were better then. And obviously, that feeling has been happening for <laughs> 2,500 <laughs> years, probably even more than that. Mm-hmm. It is ingrained in the human psyche that what is old is better. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Ezra doesn't go so far as to say this because obviously the chronicler uh, had not seen the completion of Herod's temple in the second century. But what is a little ironic to me is it could be argued that Herod's temple complex yes. was, well, I mean, it was far larger than Solomon's and quite possibly far grander. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a little bit of, of irony that the chronicler himself wouldn't have even realized that he was putting in here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so realize that these people are looking only at the temple building, not the entire temple complex but um still oh it could never possibly be as good 
Well, guys, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was It was just about identical. The people who built it made every possible effort to make it exactly the way that it was made before with exactly the same materials, the same specifications, everything. It was identical, and yet it still wasn't good enough because it That's wasn't right. old at that point. That's right. Mm. And centuries later, uh, the Jews would look back and they, I mean, second, you know, it's not second, uh, first century, um, first century AD Jews, what they had in here is temple. That complex was actually larger than the Solomonic complex. Mm. Not talking about the temple itself, but you know, all of the, the courtyard areas and where all of that, um, it actually was larger. So mm. <laughs> take that for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't, I don't care how much better the new one is. I still have fond memories of the old one. That's right. Chapter 13 goes on. There were shouts of joy intermingled with cries of sorrow. And the entire assembly, entire ensemble grew so loud it could be heard a great distance away. So I like to think there were more cheers than cries. But it does seem that often, um, the, you know, even if it's only 5% of the people who are complaining, they manage to be louder than the 95% who are... <laughs> happy about whatever's going on so. but that's human nature though i mean when something's mm-hmm. terrible you complain about you never you never praise good service as as vigorously as you complain about poor service you don't Absolutely. go people don't go on and on and on about how well they were treated at walmart this morning but when something goes bad they go on and on and on about about the negative service i don't know yep <laughs> it's interesting to me because in in twelve it seems like the chronicler doesn't. He just records it like it's a newspaper account. Mm-hmm. He's not saying, you know, there were those uh, who had nostalgia for Solomon's first temple. He doesn't make any sort of a. It's like it. It's like he just says. You know, there were some folks who were sad about the thing because they remember the first, they remember Solomon's first temple and they knew that this one could never be as good. Well, he, he doesn't make a value judgment about that. He doesn't, he doesn't yeah. show any disdain for those folks. He just says it like it is and then, and then moves on. And it's, and it's sort of a human nature is what it is. And so there were some people who saw this and, and didn't, um, well, uh, yeah, I'm definitely reading the sarcasm into it. But I think I'm able to do it from a historical perspective, knowing what the complex ended up looking like much, much, much later. Sure, sure. Um, I guess that's why I pick up on it. And, you know, it probably wasn't what the chronicler intended, but I like to think that's one of those little things that no, I'm, God kind of dropped in there. No, <laughs> that I we do. Can learn I from. agree with your assessment of the thing. I do think that he, you know, he was trying his best to sort of be fair to these people uh, and, and, and accurately describe how they felt. And mm-hmm. yet record it there so that you the, you know those of us reading thousands of years later can draw our own conclusions about those folks sure. all right well i i think that this this whole idea of the good old days and the children being disrespectful and all of that is actually a, an underlying it's the underlying current maybe of a lot of the problems that we see in the christian church today mm. because of the people who are coming to the faith new mm. um who have new ideas who maybe you know don't understand why certain american christian traditions are, should be important and elevated mm. um you know those those people tend to get tend to get batted down by those remembering the good old days. And I think it's a source of a lot of division. And I give a lot of credit to the Jews coming in here who, um, 
you know, if they got frustrated with these people, the chronicler did not record it here. It's not recorded. That, whether right. that whether that just owes to the fact that it didn't exist or whether it owes to the, the wisdom of the chronicler who decided that wasn't something that we needed to know about. That was family yeah. talk, and so it took place around the yeah. kitchen table instead of out in the public square. That's right. Uh, so, I mean, you see the chronicler here giving deference to the people of the good old days, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but you also see the people of the Jews, the people of the, the new, if you want to say, you know, call it that, coming in and, you know, sh treading lightly around those people, showing them respect. So I think you, you see a certain level of balance here. And, mm. you know, maybe that's something that the church needs more of today because Boy. too often you have those factions. So, but there is that, there is that sense that we, we as American Christians living in the 21st century can really take a lesson from what happens here at the end of chapter 3 and 12 and 13 because there are those folks who have this nostalgia and there are those folks who have a longing for the good old days even if those good old days were never as good as those folks remember them to their credit they want what is now to be better yeah. and that's a good thing they want what is now to improve and all of us should want that all of us should want a deeper relationship with God. All of us should want a better, uh, the church to be a better reflection of God's glory and about what he's doing in the world today. We all ought to want better for this place. If there's an element of nostalgia that's in there, so be it. I don't know that that nostalgia is accurate or right or fair or just, or, you know, I'm <laughs> get off my soapbox for a minute here. I don't think it's accurate or fair or right, but I love those people. And those people matter to me more than their uh, negative opinions push me away. And, and I hope that they have the same sense of me. I hope that they will, that they will say, AJ represents something uh, that I don't necessarily agree with or that I don't necessarily think is the right vision as we move forward. But AJ matters to me. I love him. And so I'm willing for us to work this thing out. And I think to a certain extent, there need to be those prophetic voices who step in and say, we don't need to look at the past. We need to look to the future, not abandoning what the past was because, you know, the, the temple needed to be rebuilt. So we don't want to throw away what we have in the past we honor that which we have received but we can't stop there we can't be stagnant mm -hmm. and you know i i noticed just as we as you were talking um these these people you know that the shouts of joy were intermingled with cries of sorrow which means the people who were sad about this and longing for the good old days they still showed up mm. they were still there to dedicate mm. that new temple yeah um so they were still i mean just by their sheer presence they were committing themselves to move forward uh, with this rebuilding of Jerusalem, even if they weren't a hundred percent getting their way. Absolutely. And um, so there's give and take on both sides. And uh, we all need to be respectful of, of one another and where we come from. That's a glorious illustration to us of how things should be today, how we need to move forward today. And, and I, I'm, I'm struck by this notion of a third way that is the correct way. It's like mm -hmm. you have your understanding of how things should go and your understanding of God's vision, and I have my understanding of God's vision, which may be leading us down a different path, and both of us are wrong, 
because neither mm-hmm. one of us exclusively has the mind of God. And so what we need to do then is find the place where God is actually wanting us to go. And both mm-hmm. of us have to give up our understanding of where, no, no, that's not right. We both have to give that up so that yes. we can get to the place where we're both going in the same direction, where God is actually going, which is separate and unique from where we think he wants us to go. You questioned me when I said start with Ezra. No, you didn't question me. You kind of gave me a sideways glance. Like, really, Ezra? There's some <laughs> like good I'm doing stuff now. in here, folks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not. I'd, I'd certainly, we need to start somewhere. Yes. Um, I think we're probably in the history of podcasting or in the history of the beginnings of new Christian things that people do. We're the first person ever. We're the first ones ever who have, you know, Ezra's the place we should start. Ezra's the thing. The, that's the that's the the most logical, obvious leaping off point is Ezra. We're the only ones who have ever said that ever, ever, ever. So yeah. there it is. You're welcome, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Benefit from our wisdom, or at least Amanda's. I'm just along for the ride. Okay. Well, what's What's the good news? Speaking of listeners, our beloved exiles, what's the good word for the exiles today? I would say that when within within the church, there's going to be conflict, but uh, <gasps> what? Right? <laughs> but when the two separate parties are both focused on God and trying to get to the same place, that conflict is only going to get you closer to where God wants you to be. So it's all about your. It's all about attitude, and we. We shouldn't be afraid of conflict. We should treat each other with with respect. I think about those folks that have left. I think about folks who uh, have have uh, grown up in the church and who have and who have just said, "I've had enough." Mm-hmm. And and you know, I'm I'm not saying that those folks are to blame for. You know, there's plenty of blame to go around for why people are leaving churches these days. Why people are leaving the church these days. There's plenty of blame to go around, but there's also there needs to be an understanding that however strongly I may feel about my particular position, God's position is probably different than mine, regardless of however I feel. And that my my uh, measure in life is not how strongly I feel about my position, but how much I'm yielded to what God wants to be doing and how much I and so, you know, if you're in that situation where you where you. Uh, you still think of yourself as a follower of Christ. You just haven't been able to find a church that follows the way that you think, uh, you know, that ought to happen, or you haven't been able to find a group of believers. You're never going to find that perfect group of believers because they would all be clones of you, and that would just be creepy. So, <laughs> you know, so 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 find find that place that most closely. Uh, relates with that either in a church or in some other grouping of believers where you can get settled in and move forward and understand that that your way is not any more right than anyone else's way is that only god's way is the right way and you got to figure that out alongside god's people in the process amanda give us some idea of uh uh, what we're going to be looking at the next time we're together we've we've talked a little bit from chapter three what's going to happen in chapter four that we need to know about in chapter four we're going to get the the first real conflict um that the jews come up against in their new area um they're going to have some enemies um well yeah the bible says enemies some enemies coming at them from the northern kingdom and some within from within jerusalem as well so uh, the action starts in chapter four 
You can find Amanda Hope Haley at her website, amandahopehaley.com. You can find A.J. Farley at his blog, wornoutbibles.blogspot.com. Both of us are also available on various social media platforms. Unless otherwise noted, scripture quotations are taken from The Voice. Copyright 2008 and 2009, Ecclesia Bible Society. Thanks for listening.